Hello and welcome once again to Rasslin' Memories on Pioneer 90.1 FM KSRQ. We're beyond the FM dial too. You can check us out at RadioNorthland.org where you can check out this show live or you can actually uh, listen to some of the archives. Yeah, we're about 10 years of archives here at RadioNorthland.org. And you can listen to a replay of this uh, throughout the, the week here. Also at the website, so we got that to look forward to. I'm Glenn Brockett, along with my co-host down there deep in the heart of the Texas, where uh, the temps might be getting a little bit, might be getting a might bit warm down there. Uh, the Grizzle Vet, Mike McCurdy. Mike, uh, we got another great addition here, and it's good to be back in uh, doing wrestling memories. Oh, definitely. What's the old term? Back in the saddle again? You yeah, know, you, I, I you guess went to so. Cabo, I went to California, so yeah. now we had to kind of come back and get back into the groove and do some more interviews. Yeah, you know, and I, I got a window here, a few-week window before I, I go back on another jaunt here uh, on Labor Day week. So I'll be heading out to uh, Las Vegas uh, the week before all the Cauliflower Alley stuff, uh, going out there with the with the wife. And, uh, yeah, unfortunately, no showboat. Well, you just didn't un- schedule that right. Yeah, unfortunately, no showboat to go to because that is a long-gone uh, place. But our guest uh, spent plenty of time working uh, for the AWA uh, at, at their TV tapings at the showboat in Las Vegas, Nevada. Uh, Mike, uh, you, uh, you you were familiar with the AWA product that was on ESPN. Maybe uh, for some, also, they had the syndicated show. But you remember uh, the 80s and the AWA at the showboat. Well, yeah, and based on how I was introduced to wrestling via my cable system living in a small town, it was the AWA. Uh, that's where I saw AWA was the ESPN. Very late, like, towards the end there. Larry Zbysko had just won the world title. Oh, you're way, that was kind of where I way rolled the end, into the AWA. The See, I growing up here, I, I had AWA. I'm an AWA country uh, sort of guy, uh, you know. And the TV I first watched AWA uh, was out of uh, their weekly show was out of Winnipeg, Manitoba. And this is where I got first got to see this guy. Uh, he wrestled under the name Tom Rocky Stone. That's when I think of this guy. I, I his face comes up, the his image comes up. I automatically I'm taken back to my early days of what, first watching wrestling in 1982. Well, you know what? It was uh, about oh, you almost two years ago. I had a chance to uh, have uh, Steve Hall, aka Tom Rocky Stone, on as part of a, a roundtable discussion uh, with some of the job guys of the pro wrestling business, the jobbers, the enhancement. Some people call them. Uh, along with uh, Chris Curtis and Mike Moran. Well, this time around, I get to have we get to have him uh, doing the solo thing because he's got a book out and it's a fun read. I just uh, reread it here uh, this week uh, and I found myself enjoying it and picking out a few things I didn't get the first time around. It's a good book called Professional Wrestling: The Theater of the Absurd. I never wanted to be a big star. And with us today, the man I uh, I grew up watching is Tom Rocky Stone. His name is Steve Hall. It's so nice to have you on. And uh, I cannot, uh, I just cannot uh, give you any more compliments uh, enough about this book. A great release. And thank you for uh, being on and uh, talking about the book and your life. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, yeah. You know, like I said, it was uh, almost, what, two years ago now that we had you uh, chatting with uh Curtis and, uh, and and Mike Moran and you guys sharing your stories and you were very instrumental and it really uh, those guys are very quick to uh, point out uh, just how instrumental you were in getting those guys uh, into the pro wrestling business you know taking them uh, you know with Curtis going going on the road with Mike too with uh, the AWA Mid South and the like but. Isn't it uh, something, though, those guys uh, talk about you and your career, but now you finally get a chance to uh, tell your story. What led you to do it? Was it uh, peer pressure from those guys? What made you decide to put out this book? Yeah, 
actually it was uh hangman mike uh called me up and said you got to write a book before you're no longer with us hopefully i'll be here a while uh, <laughs> but uh i sat down and wrote it uh and uh but basically it was mike pushing me to write it well, without his pushing i probably never would have done it Really? I mean, it was just something that never really crossed your mind before. I mean, people have their reasons about, you know, whether or not they want to, you know, share and, and, and their story. And especially it kind of goes, comes and goes with guys. It varies with in the pro wrestling business because you came from the era where it, there was a lot of guarded, a lot of secrets, a lot of things that were kept from the general public. And now in the last 20 years with all these books and stuff, it, it seems like another Another veil has been lifted uh, from from the world uh, uh, that you were very, very much, uh, you, you kept in a line, you, you uh, basically protected. Well, cable television is what ruined wrestling, in my opinion. Once there were no longer territories and everyone could watch everyone on cable TV, kind of ruined the mystery of it. You know, when you had, uh, uh, again, for example, uh, Georgia Championship Wrestling uh, out of, uh, you know, out of the Superstation TBS, that that was one of those that people really remember for kind of getting that whole thing really rolling as far as having it uh, to the masses instead of just, you know, local local area territories with the bicycle tape uh, throughout uh, the towns in the area. Well, TBS is, I mean, they made all of their guys nationwide stars where Bloom could bring one of them in or... Uh, Bill Watts could bring in someone off that TV and they had instant credibility. You didn't have to spend time getting a guy over. But also, if you were losing on that show, you were kind of killing your career. So it's kind of a double-edged sword uh, for for some more than others. And, you know, we talked talked about the the, the days, uh, uh, you know, I'm going to go back a little bit further back in time in your story and talk about, you know, how wrestling, pro wrestling came into your life and I found it quite interesting that uh, it was your father uh, that actually had some involvement with the pro wrestling business. Talk about his connection and how you kind of, uh, I guess, discovered the business and started uh, really, you know, getting taken by the pro wrestling bug. Well, my dad became the ring announcer in Milwaukee and Rockford, uh, Green Bay, for Dennis Hilgard. Uh, they worked together at, the, at a radio station, a country music station up in uh, Jackson, Wisconsin. And at one point in there, I broke up with my high school girlfriend and he gave me some, he says, why don't you come to the matches? He got me some free tickets and I happened to pick a night where Red Bastine and uh, Hercules Cortez won the title from Mad Dog and Butcher. And it was an exciting evening. And then I started going more and more decided it was something I wanted to try. And you also ended up, ended up kind of working, uh, in, you know, with, alongside your dad, as far as like, uh, with, with timekeeping and all of that. So you kind of, it kind of grew more and more on you. And it really, really was something that kind of stuck to you. Well, when I started doing the timekeeping is when I started meeting the guys, I became friends with Nick and Ray and, uh, Lars Anderson the more you got to know them, but it, it looked a lot more glamorous than it really was. I mean, you saw them fly into Milwaukee, and boy, it looked glamorous. And then once you get into the business, you find out it's six-hour car rides to do a 10-minute match and uh, maybe make 40 bucks. It wasn't nearly as glamorous as it appeared. 
not only were you a fan and, and get, you know and, and really getting to see a lot of these guys, but you also were uh, a, a bit of a writer. You you contributed to uh, something that I I got wind of uh, via Mick Karsh. He told uh, some he was on the show here a few years ago talking about his fan club, the Bachwinkle Brigade. Now talk about how you got involved with 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 fan clubs and and in writing columns and some of the stuff that you were able to stir up, uh, being able to have that power and to be able to contribute like that. Well, that was in my early collegiate days. And, uh, by that time, I no longer liked Red Bastine. I was strictly, I was a heel fan when I'd go and I wore a Bachwinkle t-shirt and I was there to get the fans angry, as angry as me as they were at, as, at Nick and Ray. Somehow I met Mick, uh, I couldn't even tell you how. He allowed me to write some columns, and I wrote some columns that really were tough on guys like Crusher and Billy Robinson. In fact, they were so tough that Nick asked us to cool it. Wow. That When, when you have the man, the head of the brigade himself, uh, come in and tell you to, to ease off a little bit, you, you were really uh, really getting under the skin of, of, of some of the, of the fans and those who, who were following the newsletters. And that's just kind of uh, part of what uh, is the charm of pro wrestling is to be able to have that villain in, instinct. But I want to talk about how, you know, you getting involved in the pro wrestling business, actual in-ring training and, and some of the steps you took to uh, get towards that career and getting into the ring. How did that come about and who were some of the driving forces to really you know, help you learn in the ring, I mean, as far as training goes and maybe just, you know, hooking up with someone who was a friend who also uh, was in the business. Uh, Talk about your development in pro wrestling here in those early days. I would say the guy who got me helped the initial training was Frank Hill, later Jules Strongbow. Uh, We worked together uh, for a couple of years. I was a security guard during college. And I worked on Sunday at the telephone company, and he was a mail deliverer for them. He delivered mail from one site to the other, and we'd sit and talk wrestling. And when he broke into the business, he started. He helped me get started. Now, I had already been working for some local little Federation Hall shows before Frank and I started working out. And I was basically, I guess you'd say, a backyard wrestler. I had... I had learned just from watching it and screwing around with it in the backyard. And I started working at Federation Hall. And by my third show there, I was actually booking the shows. Mm-hmm. And you had attempted to get some formal training, but uh, it seemed like that kind of became a bust. Talk about that experience of actually putting down some money and, and actually trying to get that, that formalized pro wrestling education from the get-go. Yep, I, I went to Allen Park, Michigan. Uh, Lou Klein, who was Red Bastine's half-brother, ran a camp there. And I got there, and they actually, I lived in a cot in the camp. But in the, I was there like two or three weeks, and in the couple of weeks I was there, I only saw Lou Klein like twice. They were all on the road every day. Every time he'd come, he'd show me how to do a headlock takedown. After a couple of weeks, three weeks of sitting alone in the gym by myself, I packed up and came home, but I'm very good at a headlock takedown. <laughs> that what was it? What did you refer to in the book? The $500 uh, headlock takedown education. Yep. Yep. <laughs> I think I paid 500 bucks to learn how to take someone over by a that, headlock. That had to have been like, what the hell? It's just like groundhog day here. Oh, here's Lou. Hey, I'm going to maybe learn something. Yeah, oh, but in a way I was probably lucky because I didn't realize he worked for the Sheik. 
And I wouldn't want to do jobs for the Sheik where he was carving kids up. So I was probably glad to get out of there. Yeah. So it worked out really for the best. And of course, uh, you know, having that, you know, meeting up with, with Frankie Hill too. And uh, the Federation Hall shows, you know, you talked about how you got involved with uh, with that uh, and, and ending up uh, with, with the booking uh, of these shows. But in your book, you talk about dealing with booking politics, even on that level of what was referred to as outlaw back in the day. Uh, you had to deal with your share of uh, stubborn uh, veterans who, whose uh, outmoded uh, ways and maybe just really just some of the stuff that they were trying to, to, to book just didn't really make proper sense. What was it like dealing with guys? And in this instance, in your book, you talk about Armando Rodriguez and Cesar Pabon. Uh, what was that like uh, to, to basically try to, uh, you know, get into their stubborn heads and, and make them figure out that what they were doing was just essentially putting themselves over, but really kind of stalling the whole creative process. Yeah, well, Caesar and Rod, they actually, they never worked at Federation Hall, but they ran some firemen's picnics uh, throughout Wisconsin, and I had gone and done some St. Louis tapings with them, so all of a sudden they started asking us to come, like me and Chris, to come and work these firemen picnic shows, and they were shows where you only went with four guys, so I'd wrestle Rod and Chris would wrestle Caesar or whoever else was there. And then we'd come back in a tag. And for whatever reason, they wanted to win all three matches, which made no sense. Because if you beat me and you beat Chris, why are we doing a tag team match? I said, that that makes no sense. I said, I'm not doing it. We'll go 20 minutes in the first match. And then we'll do a DQ in the second match. When we do the DQ, you can come running down and save Caesar. They went with it, but they bitched about it for 20 years. It's wrestling memories, and we are talking with Steve Hall. Oh, yeah, sharing some great memories uh, that Steve has captured in a book that you I definitely recommend called Professional Wrestling, The Theater of the Absurd. I never wanted to be a big star. And uh, we're back to the booking here. One of the uh, angles that uh, you did in your earlier days that uh, really, really stuck out and you shared uh, involved a guy, uh, well, he's actually even family member, well, involved Jake Milliman's daughter. Now, this was just amazing. It was, and I think ahead of its time, uh, uh, this was around the time you, uh, we were doing the whole thing with the you know the Mendocino brother angle. But let's talk about uh, how you got this uh, angle, what this angle was about. And how did you get uh, Jake's uh, daughter involved? And just it was just something else. When I saw it, I'm like, man, this seemed like it could have went off even today. Okay. Back then, we used to basically do a camp out at Jake's farm. His daughter would always come and fool around in the ring. And Jake taught her how to take bumps. So we decided to do an angle at Federation Hall where she would present my brother an award for helping Junior Olympics. Being a heel, I wasn't real happy with my brother being a good Samaritan. <laughs> so I broke the the uh, plaque over his head, and uh, Jake's daughter, Dee Dee, jumped on my back, you know, and was like strangling me from behind. So I put her on the ground and threw her into the ropes, and she knew how to run the ropes. Uh-huh. So she ran the ropes and came off, and I took her head off with a clothesline, <laughs> and we had other people come out and save her and carry her out of the building. Oh. And uh, it was a pretty hot gimmick. I don't think you could do it today. 
Oh, we were actually going to do that gimmick again. I was going to go back to Kansas City. It was probably eighty three. We were going to go back and we were going to do that angle in Kansas City. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately for Kansas City, and luckily for me, I got a union job with the electric company. Ended any aspirations of going back on the road. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it was uh, we had already talked. To, I talked about it with Bob Geigel, and we were going to do it. Oh, that would have been, yeah. Uh, and that, that would have been a hot angle. Oh. We might have even repopped the territory. Yeah, because, I mean, uh, I mean, when you uh, worked with, with for Geigel, I mean, the houses weren't exactly what they were. They were they were quite low. I mean, that would have been something that could have brought at least a few more eyes and a few more asses to those seats. Yeah, they went from being a great territory in the late 60s, early 70s. Guys were making 150 and 200 grand in that territory. Mm-hmm. Uh, which today would be probably more than a half a million dollars. Unfortunately, they did a bad angle where they did a hair match and didn't didn't lose the hair in any of the towns until they could do it on TV, and all the towns died. We're going to get into a little more talk about Kansas City, but your connection with Frankie Hill got you some opportunities down and around that area. One of which, uh, which you made appearances at, uh, were at the famed wrestling at the chase. Uh, you worked at the, worked those shows, those TV tapings. Uh, could you talk about uh, traveling down there, getting involved in, and ending up, uh, one of your first tapings here, working with, uh, a guy like uh, Bruiser Brody. I mean, cause that's going right into the into the fire. Talk about just getting there and and your experience early on working with wrestling at the Chase. Uh, not only with Brody, you uh, later on there was Pat yep. O'Connor was involved. Let's talk a little bit about that. Sure, uh, Frank Hill got me my first booking. You know, with a major promotion. Uh, I owned a record store, and he came into my store and he said, "Do you want to go to St. Louis on s- Sunday?" I said, sure. So we, I think I went with Rod and Caesar, and I'm not sure if Frank was there. Frank was probably there too. And my first match that I had in a major territory was against Dan Diamond and Gary Young in a tag team match. And they basically humiliated me. They walked away when I tried to grab a hold. Uh, they body slammed me 10 times. They backdropped me 10 times. And taking bumps on that St. Louis ring and the chase was worse than taking ring of bumps on concrete. Mm. It was the hardest ring that I'd ever worked on. It was terrible. And I got came out of that match. I was I had never been so sore in my life. And uh, we walked upstairs to the we all dressed in one big conference room there. Pat O'Connor looked at me and said, uh, "You got Brody on the next table." And this is before Brody had gallbladder surgery. He was like 320 pounds and he had a V shape mm-hmm. and he was ugly and mean. And I walked up to him and introduced myself and he said, kid, let me thank you now in case I can't thank you after. And I'm going, I just got beat up by these two little punks. And now Brody's thanking me before we get back to the locker room. <laughs> so I was a little leery. Actually, Frank was a charm to work with. He did drop me first on the top rope, and I didn't know how to do it. And he could have hurt me pretty bad, but that would have been my fault. 
for not knowing what the hell I was doing. But that opened up doors to heading down to working for, for, for Bob Geigel in the central states. We talked about the situation financially uh, where they were at at that time. Uh, you also ended up uh, working under, uh, well, working with Bob Brown and also uh, another Bob at that time was Bob Sweetan, the bruiser. Uh, talk about, uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, the Bobs. I guess the, you would call them the three Bobs. You got Bob Geigel, you got Bob Brown, the Bulldog, of course, a mainstay down in the Kansas City area, and Bob Sweetan. I got along real well with Geigel and Brown. I don't think any of them got along with Sweetan. Bob was kind of a jerk, but he was my boss, so if you had to put up with him, because uh, <laughs> he was the booker at the time I was there. The guy, Geigel and Brown, I got along great. You know, they treated me fine. I was making 300 bucks a week. There were a few interesting things that happened there. Sweet Tan, one night we were at, we, we were flying from, from Des Moines on a Saturday night. We had to go to St. Louis for TV the next morning. And Sweet Tan in the airports, he would like to take his bag as someone you know would be running by him trying to get to a plane. Mm-hmm. And he'd turn his bag and trip him. And actually when they would get up ready to fight... And then they would look up and see Bruiser Bob Sweetan, uh, who might have been one of the ugliest people on the on the planet. He was famous for doing that, and uh, it was kind of funny. <laughs> you also, at that time in the locker room, you were working alongside uh, guys, uh, I mean, younger guy like Bill Irwin. You had uh, the, some of the mainstays like Jerry Brown, Rufus R. Jones, and also a uh, former NWA champion, Pat O'Connor. Uh, so, I mean, it was quite the blend, but talk a little bit about, uh, those guys. I mean, you got a chance to work with, uh, Pat O'Connor, first of all. I mean, uh, he was, uh, there were some interesting, uh, things in your, that was mentioned in your book about Pat, uh, uh, some of the things that you, you were stories of, not necessarily with you in the ring, but him, uh, uh, taking a little napsy, having a little, maybe a little too many nips before and after. What was, what was up with Pat at that, yeah, that, that period that of time? Was a match, that was a match he had in Des Moines with Tank Patton where he literally fell asleep in the middle of the ring. And I learned about that because I had to wrestle him one night. Bob Sweetan told me to make sure he didn't fall asleep because I don't know what the hell you do if a guy is sleeping in, in the middle of the ring and he's a world champion. And what the hell do you do? Pat, Pat was he wrestled in 1950s style. Oh, he was, his matches were different than anything I had encountered in the AWA or anywhere else. Uh, he would basically lay in one hole for 20 minutes. Uh, when I'd wrestle him, he'd have me put him in a front face lock and he'd sell it and lay there and lay there and lay there and he'd fight up and he'd suplex me, but have me hold on. And then we'd lay in the hold again. That was basically the entire match very different than anything I'd ever seen before. Pat was also a shooter uh, where one night we were doing interviews and I called him old on my interviews. And I, when we got to the town, he hadn't been at the TV taping and we got to the town that night and he had me in the back on the floor tied up. And I mean, he had me tied up as a pretzel and he had me screaming for mercy. So as old as he was, he was still a shooter. He was a tough son of a bitch. 
Well, we're halfway through this edition of Wrestling Memories, and it's time to bring in the Grizzle vet, Mike McCurdy, to uh, ask a few questions for our guest today, Steve Hall. Of course, we know Steve uh, up here as Tom Rocky Stone. Uh, Mike, are uh, you ready to go with uh, a few questions for our guest today? One thing I'd like to touch on, this, this is what I found kind of interesting in the book, because I said, you know, my introduction to the AWA was ESPN towards the end of the you know, their run. Well, part of that ESPN run was the Team Challenge Series. And you were a member of the Team Challenge Series. In fact, you were in the final match of the series. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, the concept of the Team Challenge Series and uh, give us a little more detail on it? Because not recognized as a great part of time in AWA history. And the Team Challenge Series also was a lot of, I don't think people really understood what it was. I don't think the guys understood what it was. <laughs> I, mean, I, I mean, I'm being honest, but that was after ESPN. We were back in Minneapolis at that point in a TV studio. They put us on teams and we do some interviews and then we just go out and have regular matches. Uh, I mean, there was no, we didn't know as guys, we'd get there and they'd say, okay, you're wrestling. It was no different for us. Okay. You're wrestling him. One day they decided, they said, okay, this is the final match. And it was Jake and Todd, a guy by the kid by the name of Todd Becker, who I don't even remember. And it was me and Jake Milliman. And they asked us to go out and do a three-way dance, which we had never done. I mean, this is before they have all these three-way dances where they started putting them in so they could change the title without beating the champion. So Jake and I had no idea what they wanted, and they never told us what they wanted. In fact, after the match, they were mad at Jake because he was selling, and he somehow hooked Todd Becker in the DDT and DDT'd him out of selling, and Vern didn't like what he did, but they didn't tell us what to do. So I can't tell you what the – I mean, the concept was there was so much money for the team challenge in every match you had – you know, was worth so many points and the final, the team with the most wins won the thing. So undoubtedly we were all down in the finals and there were three teams and each team had the same number of wins, but why would you have Tom Stone and Jake Milliman when Sergeant Slaughter and the guy you mentioned, Larry Zabisco, were the team captains? Why were Tom Stone and Jake Milliman in this championship match? I have no idea. I went there and got my paycheck and did whatever they asked me to do. By the time you came into watching and Larry was champion, the AWA was already dead. Yeah, I can't tell. In fact, the first AWA show I remember watching included the Battle Royal that Larry won to win the title in the first place. I believe he eliminated Tom Zink, if I remember right. But that's when I joined in. It was the Battle Royal where he actually won the title. And like you said, that was at the very end of, there wasn't much steam left in the engine for AWA by that one. Yeah, that was probably at the end of the showboat era. And then we ended up back in Minneapolis in front of no crowds. And it was, yeah, I have no idea what the whole concept was. They were just trying to do something different because they knew they couldn't compete match-wise or talent-wise with the product that they were putting on out in New York. Now, uh, a name you brought up, you said he was in the, in the main event area. This is a guy that I discovered in AWA, and I, I actually liked him. I, I thought he was – there was just something about him I kind of took through, and that was uh, Jake Milliman, the, mil the milkman, as they call him. 
Um, what can you tell us about, you know, Jake Milliman and working with him? Because I enjoyed his character. I enjoyed watching him on TV and all that. He was kind of one of the AWA guys that I kind of took to watching. I, I thought he was, re- you know, really entertaining in the ring. Jake was my best friend at the time. Uh, we traveled up and down the roads together. He had a unique, because he was short and he had the, you know, the biker, the, the ZZ Top beard. He was a major fan favorite uh, in the AWA. He was just a good hand who knew how to wrestle. And I think had he had it been 10 years earlier, when the territories were going strong, he could have been a major star. He was that good. Uh, and he was a blast to work with. I mean, I used they used to pit me and him against quite a bit in the AWA. And we would go out and do main event matches in the opener. He was just, he was easy and fun and we trained together and we rode the roads together and we were tag teams locally and we were opponents locally and not much more than I can say other than he could have been a big star under the right circumstances. And when they did try to give him the push with Jesse Ventura, Jesse left and went to New York and that kind of ended that. That was a shame because the give Jake a break was uh, very promising. And what did he end up just tagging with Steve Regal or something after uh, after uh, Jesse yeah, left? They did like they did like two shows together, and then Jesse left, and then he teamed up with Regal, and it no longer had. It wasn't what. Well, you didn't, it didn't ha- work that way. You didn't have the the mouthpiece that that was Ventura to kind of keep this uh, story going along. And when he was gone, yeah, it it really. It, it really kind of just just fell apart. I was watching uh, not too long ago uh, online, just going to YouTube or whatever, watching an episode of the uh, Pro Wrestling uh, USA show and seeing uh, one of the earlier tapings, uh, Jake Milliman taking on Terry Funk. And that had to have been one of the most entertaining job matches I, I had seen on that, that episode. Having those two together and the way Terry actually kind of gave him a little bit to work with, uh, it really uh, made Jake shine uh, in those days. Well, the guy, Terry Funk was one of the greats. He was also a guy who was willing to, you know, let the job guy work if he knew you could work. No different than when I worked with Bachwinkle, he would let me pin him on, and cover him on TV and get a two count. You know, you just, you didn't see that very often. Terry was someone that Jake and I really liked because he liked to do Looney Tunes. Mm-hmm. He would like to inject comedy into a match and see if he could take it to comedy and then bring it back to hard, to real wrestling and Terry was a master of it. He, yeah, Terry was great. Your your AWA days. I want to go back a little bit further than uh, from when when Mike asked about the uh, latter day of, of the territory uh, and how you got involved. Uh, you know, you had the connections from earlier on, but making the uh, travel arrangements and heading to TVs and stuff. You not only brought yourself to the show, but it ended up after a while you came became some sort of liaison for some of the guys that travel with you uh, for those tapings, uh, which later morphed into uh, some of the stuff out in Las Vegas with the showboat. So talk about how you kind of fell into that role uh, of responsibility uh, to herd these guys and to uh, make sure you have uh, these people showing up for these tapings? Well, what happened was initially I got to the job when Frank Hill left to go full-time in Kansas City. And I did it maybe for six months. And then when I left to go to Kansas City, Jake took it over. And after I came back from Mid-South, I was kind of retired 
and they were starting to do Vegas again. That was when they were starting to do Vegas. And Jake called and said, why don't you come to Vegas? And the minute I went to Vegas, I started doing all the booking for Vegas. Jake kind of knew once I came back, I was going to take over. Mm-hmm. It was just my nature at the time. He was he okay uh, with it though. Ultimately, I mean, because I mean, not only were you booking yourself, but well, you're also making sure you were contacting the office for they, tickets. Yeah, they didn't pay anything extra for doing the booking. It was just something. It was just crap you had to do, like buy the plane tickets, and you know. So Jake didn't mind that, but then because Terry Garvin was doing the booking in New York, and I knew Terry from Kansas City. He had been in the office in Kansas City. I started bringing my crew, and we had probably anywhere 10 to 15 guys around the Milwaukee and Chicago area that I could call and take to the TV tapings. And so I started, I was booking guys to Vegas, you know, every other month. And then I was booking guys to the uh, New York's tapings. In fact, there were many times when we would fly from Vegas and Vince would fly us from Vegas to his show and then fly us home. I just always kind of took over when I went somewhere, just like Federation Hall. And uh, well, talk a little bit about uh, those those days out at the showboat. I, I mean, you get a bunch of professional wrestlers traveling out to Las Vegas. Uh, that already sounds like a recipe for, for interesting, but talk a little bit about th- those days out there and you guys, uh, what you did, where'd you stay, and uh, some of the memories of, of being able to, to work uh, those monthly tapings. Well, they had us, we stayed across the street from the showboat at the showboat annex. And it was actually a room where you could probably put eight people in one room. So Vern wasn't going out of his way to give us nice rooms. Now, his stars were over at the showboat, but we were in the showboat annex. And I guess I'll tell one story. We got there and we got in late. It was probably midnight and I was dead tired. I'm laying on the bed and Jake took to sh- took a shower to wake up, and just as I started to fall asleep, Jake was still dripping wet. He had not dried off. He jumped on the frickin' bed. I'm getting slapped in the face, and I guess you can figure out what was slapping yeah. me in the face. Needless to say, at that point, we went out to this, Jake and I went out to the strip, and Jake tried jumping over some hedges and ended up in a, uh, ended up in a, uh, pool how in the heck did he end up jumping over a man we talk about stories in vegas that uh you know become a little foggy with the years but jumping into a like a pond or some sort of area of water we were at one of the hotels and they had some hedges up he jumped over the hedge and ended up in a pool and it wasn't a pool it was one of the things in front of the thing you know a little but jake uh i mean when we went there we went there to have fun we went there, I don't know, Rick Antner, who ended up being one of the Texas hangmen. Me and him went out to one of the whorehouses in Payrump. We went to shows when we went there. We went there to have fun. We, I mean, we, we made it a three-day Vegas trip to go and do one night at TV. Well, I mean, it makes perfect sense to maximize it if you're going to be out there. I mean, to go out and experience it instead of just, you know, making it just another gig on, on, on the itinerary. I mean, Vegas, and especially in those days, and that locker room, man. Oh, brother, that had to have been a good time. I'm going to bring Mike back into the conversation. He's got a couple of questions left today. I Like I said, I had a chance to read the book and kind of go through it. And, yeah, I was really enjoying the stories, but 
you made a couple of comments in there that kind of caught my attention. And uh, one of them, you mentioned how you never got a chance to meet uh, Red Bastine and that you should have gone to a Cauliflower Alley Club, but you didn't feel you belonged there, even though, you know, you would have been. And you said that that wasn't part of your code. Um, I'd like to talk a little no, bit I, about I, that, I, I, you know, because... Yeah, let me explain. When when the guys, when I was working full time, you know, I went out drinking with the boys and everything else, just like everybody else. But when I was a part timer, I didn't feel that I belonged. Like I didn't go down to the hotels where they were staying in Milwaukee and hang out with the boys. They would have had no problem if I had been there. I just felt when you were doing it full time, you were in a different league than the guy who was doing it as a weekend warrior. I was doing it as a part-time job. So I didn't have to work at seven 11 for five bucks an hour or $7 an hour. I would much rather go and make 200 bucks having fun in the ring with somebody. So it was my belief that I, and then I didn't want to go to the cauliflower alley club because I wasn't a full-time guy and I didn't think I belonged. And again, had I gone, Nick would have loved to see me. I would have got to meet Red, who was the president for a long time. Could have gone. Just I personally didn't feel it was right. Have you considered possibly going now? Because, I mean, they do the, the reunions coming up in September. I've been a member since 2006. It, it's a great opportunity because a lot of the guys who you haven't seen for years, it's a chance to reunite with them. And, you know, you see old friends again. Have you considered possibly you know, attending it sometime in the future? No, no. Most of my old friends are, are gone. Yeah. Just okay. being honest. Uh, I mean, Brunzel and Gagne are still around, but Jake, the snake is still around, but most of the guys I worked with are gone. And okay. when I walked away from the business back in the mid nineties, when my son started playing baseball, I really have been almost totally away from the business. I don't watch it on TV. I can't stand what the product they put out. And I, I really have no interest in going to Cauliflower LA Club because, again, all the guys I, I really respected and loved are all gone. Another point that was brought up in your book, you talked about at the beginning of the interview that you were contacting someone said, hey, you should write a book, you know, before, you know, you're gone. And you didn't want to write a book. And you state that in uh, the book that you still – kind of believed in kayfabe and you didn't want to tell the stories on it. Now that you've had a chance, you wrote the book, it's out there, the people are reading it. You know, did you enjoy getting the chance to tell these stories? And, you know, what's the feedback been from uh, uh, people now that you sat down and tell your story? Well, I mean, if you read the book, you know that mostly it's just little stories, things that happened. You know, there's a Buck Robley story where he leaves his girlfriend at a truck stop and there's, the night in Kansas city where the guys took out shotguns on the way back from Des Moines, you know, there's a Ken Patera story where the brick got thrown through the window at the McDonald's and they got to, so, I mean, they're just little, they're glimpses of the things around the business. Uh, it wasn't meant to be about the matches. Uh, and they're, they're the same stories that if Jake and I are together, or Chris Curtis and I are together, or I'm talking to Mike Moran on the phone. They're the same stories that we tell each other. So they're just getting a glimpse into the things that 
I remember from the last 40 years, and they're the things that we still talk about as guys who are in the business. So that, I mean, when I wrote it, I wrote it more to be, to just keep the memories alive of the stories that we tell each other. And the guys from who wrestled, a lot of the guys who wrestled with me have bought the book and they all love it because they're the same stories we told each other in the cars when we drive. Or if I go have dinner with one of the boys now, they're the stories we talk about. Well, I gotta say, I enjoyed the book and I love the stories. And as a historian, you know, I understand that, you know, if you don't tell these stories, these stories aren't passed on, eventually these stories are, you know, they're going to die. There's, you know, the people aren't going to be here to, uh, to, you know, pass along these stories and all that. So I thoroughly enjoyed them. There are, there are a few that may not be, uh, you know, for the, the, the fainted heart. There's one about a uh, young woman that was left in a hotel room. That one was a little bit, that one surprised me. I will, I will, I will give you that one. <laughs> But overall, it's a great book, and uh, I want to thank you for you know taking the time you know, to uh, you know write it and tell the stories. Going back to that story, though, that's something that happened in the business. You know, it wasn't you know it was something that was that went over, went on everywhere in the business. You know, so it mm-hmm. I, I tried to to tell the story of what you would have seen if you had been in inside the business a little bit. Um, one last thing before uh, I pass it back over to Glenn, we haven't talked about this yet, was, uh, you know, you actually had a run in the WWF. You mentioned in your book that you were uh, the one, two, three kids first opponent. I believe he would have still been doing either the cannonball kid or the kamikaze kids. I think that's how he first started um, when he was going in there. But, you know, how was your run in the WWF? Because you mentioned you worked with guys like, you know, Haku and the one, two, three kid, uh, the powers of pain. I mean, a lot of the the big names that we all remember from uh, that time. What was it like your run in the uh, WWF? Well, it was, I mean, it was fine. When I went in there, almost everybody in the office was an AW, was either old AWA. uh, You know, there were guys like Lanza was in the office and Bachman was in the office and Heenan was there in the office. So I was friends and they all knew me. And they knew I could work. So I was treated real well. Rene Goulet was there. All guys who I knew and had been friends with. So, and with Terry Garvin, when they would need someone to fill in, they would call me and, you know, they'd fly me into Rapid City, South Dakota, or they'd, you know, fly me to Detroit or, you know, so they treated me great. They paid really good. They they actually paid me for bringing in the... I'm going to use the term, but I hate it, the enhancement talent. We were jobbers. We were not enhancement talent. But they treated me great. And again, a lot of the guys who were on top there who I worked with were old Mid-South people who I worked with in Mid-South. So guys like Jake Roberts and uh, Paul Orndorff. And I, I knew all those guys. We were friends. So I kind of got treated different than a lot of people. Uh, I mean, you, you just mentioned uh, a gentleman that we just lost here recently, and that's uh, Paul Orndorff. You know, you mentioned you worked with him. He was a friend of yours. Uh, could you share a little bit about Paul Orndorff and for the listeners? Well, when, when I was in Louisiana with Paul, he was on. T- he was working a program on top with Ken Mantell 
and they were doing a hair match, and we ended up doing it in three towns. We ended up doing it in New Orleans and Shreveport and Jackson. And it got, when the hair cream went on Ken Mantell at the end of that, in a match that Ken Mantell actually choked out Orndorff and won the match, I never heard a larger crowd pop anywhere at any time. I mean, it was by far the biggest pop I've seen in the AWA or anywhere I've been that when the care cream went on, it was unbelievable. And uh, Paul was a big star at the time. And this is before he became Mr. Wonderful. Him mm-hmm. and Junkyard Dog were carrying that territory at the time on the babyface side. Uh, one last thing I'd like to ask you before I pass it over to Glenn for the final moments. You just mentioned this. Is that you, <clears throat> excuse my voice. You don't like the term enhancement talent. Um, that seems to be kind of the term that's used now. What, what, what's, your, what, what's your problem with the, uh, the term enhancement talent? It's one of those new age terms where you can't offend anybody. It's typical of today's society. The reason they were called jobbers is because we weren't part of the territory. For us, it was a job on a Saturday morning to make a hundred bucks. We were a job guy. I mean, I don't know what, mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden we got into this where you can't offend anybody. And Oh, you're, you're calling them a job guy. You're offending them. You're not offending them. If they're offended by that, they're in the wrong business. My opinion. Okay. Well, you know what? It's about time to wrap up the show. And, uh, I, I, I like the term jobber or job guy. I've never really had a problem with, uh, with, with saying it, uh, I know it's a little un PC in this world, but you know, to each their own. But I have one more question, Steve, before uh, we go today. As far as wheelmen go, where does Chris Curtis rank, and uh, what sort of uh, experience uh, experiences have you had with Chris as the wheelman? Uh, tell you two stories. Driving through Des Moines on a two o'clock in the morning on the way to Kansas City. I looked over at the speedometer, and people won't realize this because we didn't have digital. We actually had a speedometer. We had a little thing that went, a line that went. You couldn't see it, which meant we were going more than 120 miles an hour down the freeway in Des Moines, and our fuzz buster went off, and we were sliding sideways down the highway. And then on another occasion, we were sitting in the back seat, and we had a rule when we drove that if you fell asleep while you were driving, the other guy next to you never always stayed awake so he could wake you up. Well, we started to hit an off-ramp, and it was Chris and I, and Armando Rodriguez was driving, and he hit the off-ramp to get off in Milwaukee. We had just come back from St. Louis, and Chris had just fallen asleep. So I chopped him as hard as I could in the chest, and he woke up thinking he was driving, and we were going off the road. And he was trying his best to find the steering wheel, which was nowhere near where he was. But, <laughs> uh, oh man, one of the funniest moments watching him try to find the steering wheel and the gas pedal and the brake, then finally realizing that he was sleeping in the back seat. That story and many others are in a real great book called Professional Wrestling, The Theater of the Absurd. I never wanted to be a big star. A big thank you uh, to our... Which is available on Amazon, by the way. Available on Amazon. This guy knows how to work. He knows how to get that plug in at the end. And it was a very... Steve Hall, 
Stone. So the other boys call me. For the Grizzled Vet, Mike McCurdy, I'm Glenn Broggett. This has been Wrestling Memories.